Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Michael Howell. Michael is co-founder and CEO of Dolly, a Seattle-based tech company that was created in 2015 to reimagine the moving and delivery experience by putting the customer in control. Dolly has grown into the leading on-demand final mile delivery provider for retailers like Best Buy, Costco, Crate and Barrel, and many more. Mike's passion for the customer experience and using data to uncover and act on business insights that solve problems has been the cornerstone of his entrepreneurial success. Prior to Dolly, Michael was a co-founder at WetPaint, a media and social publishing company that was acquired by Viggle. Previous to that, Mike was a management consultant at Lake Partners Strategy Consultants, where he specialized in analytics-driven strategic consulting. He is a member of the Digital Analytics Association and has a degree in economics with honors from the London School of Economics. He lives in Seattle with his wife and three kids. Welcome, Mike. I don't think I knew that you had three. I thought it was two for some no, reason. No, no. Uh, Did you pop out another or am I just out of date? No, I think uh, my little guy is now five and a half. So you, we oh. talked about that. But you know, sometimes yeah. like details get lost in the shuffle. <laughs> yeah. So how old are the kids? How many? Yeah, the little guy's five and a half. So how old's yeah. the oldest? Yeah. So Harper is my oldest. She's eleven. Uh, and then I've got another daughter named Charlotte, and Charlotte is nine. And then Lincoln is my little guy, and he'll be six here in June. Oh my gosh, those are the cutest names, by the way. And Dolly's a cute name. We have so much to discuss. So much got, cuteness. So much cuteness over there. Okay, so we're starting with rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, do you prefer London or Paris? London. Mountains or beach? Mountains. What's the best movie that you've ever seen? Oh, man. That's a uh, tough one, right? I was like, please don't ask uh, me that uh, ever. Like, I know. Best movie I've ever seen. I think like the first one, like, like I love movies, but I'll just say the first one that comes to my, my mind is Scarface. Oh, God, that's my husband's. I'm like, really? Again? I love it. <laughs> it is really, really good. Um, who's an entrepreneur that you admire? An entrepreneur that I admire, um, God, there's so many of them and particularly locally. Um, but I think if I were to kind of think of it about it a little bit more broadly, um, it's really hard not to pick people like Elon Musk. So I still consider him to be an entrepreneur, but yeah. obviously light years ahead of everyone, but he's just created so much change and impact that he's always the person that comes to mind. Yeah. It's funny because I do ask that question, not all the time, but I have sprinkled it in and I've not had somebody not say Elon Musk yet. It's just hard. Like, he's I mean, the man, he's the grand poobah, right? Uh, he is like, listen, I, I, we could have a much longer conversation about whether I'd want to be Elon per se, but like I admire what he's doing and how he's doing it and the breadth with which he's taking it on. Yeah. And his brains, right? I mean, the oh, guy yeah. must just be brilliant. Okay. So if there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? Oh my God. <laughs> um, 
I, God, that's a tough one, but um, let me try to articulate it in a way. Uh, I'm going to say this and I don't mean it to be like, uh, you know, you know, I don't mean it to be from a place of hubris, but like, um, it would be called a zest for life. Like, and I say that because I really try to live my life with no regrets. And like, I try to, you know, enjoy the moment. And, um, I've always kind of said, I want to be the person who kind of comes into the grave, you know, driving sideways, skidding in and kind of drops off. And so anyway, I guess something like that. I love that. And it's funny because during COVID, I've been um, more aware than ever of like all the things on my list that I want to do. And um, I just want to come out like it's the roaring 20s. <laughs> I'm just so excited so to start traveling and living and just like, ah, take a bite out of it. So that totally makes sense. You, It's funny you say the roaring 20s. I had this conversation with my, my general counsel and we were talking about later this year and planning some things and he had said, you know, one thing I think is going to happen is when people go back to the regular way, like it is going to be the roaring 20s. Like, oh, yeah, it's on. And in streets and partying and yeah. you know, lots of libations. And so, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So um, I'm super curious on this one. And I was going to throw it into the later questions, but I'm like, this might be rapid fire. What's the craziest thing that you've been asked to move at Dolly? <laughs> There's probably things I shouldn't talk about. Um, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, back to the movie Scarface. No, I'm, I'm only kidding. Um, you know, the, the beauty of this job is we get asked to move all kinds of strange things, right? And so I'd say one that occurs to me is we moved a person's personal mannequin collection, oh. uh, which is not something I would have imagined. And it wasn't as it, like this person wasn't a, did not own a clothing store. Um, sort That's of. a little weird. And yeah. there's probably a whole room dedicated if the other things in there we won't discuss. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It, interesting. It did give me a little bit of the heebie jeebies from like the silence of the lambs sort of, you yeah. know, deal. Super creepy. Um, okay. Well, in line with what we were just discussing, I'm super curious, like, what are you most looking forward to uh, after COVID? Some I've had people say like going to the movies. I'm like, really? <laughs> I just I want to travel. Yeah, I think it's travel. I mean, you know, I would say my wife and I loved to travel, but we've got three kids as as I shared, and so that's been harder lately. But the kids are also kind of getting to the age where we can really travel with them, and we've yeah. done we did just a little bit of that before COVID, and was like, oh, that was awesome, and the kids yeah. now remember the trips. So I think it's absolutely travel for sure. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would say is. We just, uh, you know, going out to dinner really easily at the restaurants we love without having to think about making a reservation soup, like, you know, and there's no reservations you got to plan totally. for in advance, but popping out and having drinks and dinner is another thing that's really yeah. important to me. Well, count me on the list. I would love to see you over uh, cocktails or dinner. Yeah. So, so we're talking about the kids. We both have our three kids. Like, how are you raising your kids differently than how you were raised? Like, where, where, where are you from? I'm from Missoula. I'm a local. I'm a native. Oh, but we've discussed this before. Yeah. I knew that. So you're you're a local, and um, tell me about your childhood here. Is it kind of your standard, like my childhood? Uh, Similar. Yeah. You know, I had a good childhood. My parents are still married. You know, uh, they have. Um, they live out in Missoula in the same house my dad bought in 1976 for. 70,000 bucks, as he likes to remind me. Um, and, you know, so I grew up in Issaquah. I'm a, a prodigy of the public school system. I spent a lot of time in the mountains doing the whole mountain thing. I skied my face off. 
um, played soccer, you know, kind of did that and then went away for school. So I think it was yeah. a pretty kind of typical Northwest, you know, growing up. Yeah. I have a whole sister it's pretty good. Family. There's a reason. I mean, I left for 17 years. There's a reason why I came back here to raise the kids and, and exactly how you described it. Um, I grew up more water than than mountains, but yeah, pretty similar. So when you were like in middle, we weren't friends back then, but if you were like in middle school or high school, how would your friends have described you? And are you still the same guy? Um, I'm guessing like when I've met you, you're an entrepreneur. Would they have been like, of course he's going to be an entrepreneur? I don't know if they would have said entrepreneur. I think they would have said business for sure. Like I was definitely kind of the business guy. I mean, one of the things I don't spend a lot of time talking about, but I was valedictorian of my class. And so- Dang, well, I was thinking, I'm like London School of Economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think they, I don't know if they would have spotted entrepreneur. Like I'm not the guy who was selling sodas out of my locker at school to make a, yeah. you know, to make 10 cents. And I have a lot of admiration for entrepreneurs who were doing stuff like that way back in the day. I was very focused on how do you go create a big business and how do you make a business run really well? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think they would have said, yeah, it's no surprise that Mike is running a company. I don't know if they would have said entrepreneur, but for what it's worth, like I am still, I have a very close group of high school friends that I think is fairly rare, um, where I still talk and see many of them. Well, yeah, I didn't realize, by the way, that that was rare until I left Seattle. And I do think there's something special about Seattle in that way, because I met so many people along the way in San Francisco and New York who are like, you're still in touch. I had 30 plus people at my wedding. Yeah, that were from high school. Yeah. So you know, with their plus ones, it's like 60 people. (laughs) But it was like a reunion, which was actually pretty fun. Um, so, you know, when you were younger, you say they wouldn't have necessarily thought that, like, what, what inspired you to get such good grades? Was it pressure? Was it just like, I'm just naturally smart. It's kind of easy for me. My best friend was actually valedictorian and and it kind of annoying because she actually has a photographic memory and she would just like party and then just like get an A. I'm like, this isn't fair. Yeah, no, I had to work at it. Um, I like, there's plenty of friends that I went to, to university with that I would say like, Hey, they were like naturally brilliant where to your point like they could party all night and get up in the morning and write a you know 10 page paper and ace it and I wasn't that uh, you know I, I certainly had to work at it but it also um, you know academics was my thing it was also interesting and easy for me in that in mm-hmm. that respect I was probably mostly motivated to it you know like my dad was always pretty influential for me and certainly one of my mentors and was the guy who was kind of saying hey you want to do well at school and you know not because of just doing well at school and high school, but like connected the dots for me to say, here's what, here's how, let me, let, let's, let's, let's take a 10 or 20 or 50 year view of your life. Like mm-hmm. this is why it's important to start early. Um, yeah. So- I've kind of said that to my kids and talking about like the funnel, as far as, as a recruiter, I'm like the funnel just starts like an inverted funnel. The triangles, like the tip at the top, like, you know, and we're looking and not necessarily in, well, in tech even, but when I was in New York recruiting, it would be like, let's talk, start with the top 10 schools and only focus there. And then if yeah. we can't get the candidates, then we go like a level below. So I just talk about it as in a sense of like opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's true. So how did you decide? You must have had like the pick of lots of schools. How did you decide London School of Economics? Well, I like there's a wrinkle in there that, um, or I should say a little bit of a nuance I should describe. So the first two years of my college um, experience were at Whitman. Uh, oh, great school. I had college. actually had uh, Jonathan Spazzato on here. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever connected the dots on Whitman, but he's like, I think on the board, he's like really passionate Super about that involved. school. Yeah. yeah. I don't actually know him, but it's, it, you know, I have met him and we have, we've talked a little bit about Whitman, but um, I'm not an alum. So, you know, that kind of well, gets me yeah. outside of that. Now I married a witty, which is also very common. So my wife went to Whitman and that's where we met. So the long, the short version of this is I went to Whitman for two years 
It's a small private liberal arts college in Walla Walla, so a really small town. And I really adored my time there. I think it's a wonderful school, but it was too small for me. And it was not enough business, right? It didn't have that real flavor of, that I wanted to press on. And so that's what I started looking you know, beyond and obviously went far away. And the short version of that why London was... Um, I knew I wanted to travel because that was something I had loved to do. I knew I wanted to go to a school where I didn't have to learn another language and economics had kind of was my major that was developing at Whitman. And so then back to my earlier comment about my dad, I went and spent some time with him and said, hey, if I want to go abroad, I don't want to learn a new language and I want to study economics. He talked about the school called London School of Economics. I didn't know what it was. And he said, you know, you should go check this out. And sure enough, I looked at it. And I brought it into my my econ advisor at Whitman, and you know they were basically like, if you can go there, like that's the school. Oh, so, for sure, that's the school. Yeah. So, do you still have friends from there? Yeah, from LSE for sure. And so, um, you know, uh, I try to get to London um, as frequently as I can, which is infrequent. But yeah, I still have a lot of uh, of friends who live in Europe. Mm-hmm. And where are they mostly from? I'm I'm super curious. Is it like? They're from all over. All over the world. What a cool experience. You're like an Issaquah guy going to Whitman and then your whole world just completely opens up. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't, the two schools couldn't be more diametrically opposed in so many ways. I mean, just from, you know, from where they're located to how they're run to the kind of student body that goes there to what they study and focus on. And I would have, I said, you know, I really enjoyed um, LSE and graduating from LSE, but I think it was a more well-rounded experience because I had the two years at Whitman. Um, but yeah, I mean, the student body at, at LSE is like phenomenally um, diverse and, and yeah. from all over the world. So, but most of my friends, a lot of people come from various places in Europe, from Egypt to the Isle of Man, like, you know, everything in between those areas. Yeah. And um, did you go right into consulting? Yeah. So I literally, you know, I, I often tell people this. I haven't had a day off since <sighs> I you know, since I graduated school, I literally- I'm the same exact way. I started working and I just, there was a part of me that wishes I had just done that that gap year or I'm scared as a mom to encourage it for my kids because I've had a few people are like, they're still in Sun Valley, like ski ski bums, like at age 40. Um, Whatever, that's fine too, I guess for the kids. But um, I'm with you, like, gosh, we should have done that. Maybe you'll just like sell Dolly and we'll just see each other on the beach somewhere. That would be a good idea. Cause I, I feel like, you know, yeah, I wish I would have taken some breaks in between things and I wanted to, it just like, didn't feel like I could between. Well, you probably things. got recruited or, you know, obviously we're going to get into wet paint, but like an, an idea, a connection, like things just start to roll and then yeah. you're off to the races, but tell exactly. me about consulting. Cause I'm a big fan, at least in my experience of meeting entrepreneurs, the ones who have started in like consulting and or, and or, investment banking seem like they've got a great foundation for just thinking broadly about their business. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So I spent five years as a management consultant for a great firm here in town. Yeah, Um, I know Joe. He's a great guy. Joe's awesome and, you know, had a really great foundational experience learning from him. Uh, and, uh, And so, yeah, I'd say um, I think you're absolutely right, which is it is a really strong foundational point of view for business because you see so many problems and how to structure, solve, uh, and solve them. And so uh, so I'm really happy that I spent five years as a consultant, but I'd also say the flip side of that is at some point for me, at least, and this is very common, you start getting a little bit of the itch to want to go be an operator and not just- Oh, for sure. I was thinking that I'm like, when you're just operating on behalf of or advising on yeah. behalf of someone else you're like 
now I want to go do this and, yeah. and feel the personal impact and not like walk away and go to a new company. Yeah. 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 It was two things for me. One is, and, and, you know, the, my entrepreneurial roots um, kind of, I think were getting planted subliminally when I was a kid because um, you know, even though I wasn't the guy selling Cokes out of the locker, one of the things that I have reflected on is a lot of people I knew um, on families I knew and looked up to their mothers and fathers owned their own businesses, right? Like they, and I, I hadn't identified that until five years ago, like, hey, why was that? And so I was kind of moving down this path of building out a background and a foundation in business. And I think it was coming together with also a sub, you know, kind of a, an internal desire to own a business at some point. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I could have articulated that to you when I was leaving the consulting world. I knew I wanted to go be an operator. I knew I wanted to go try something in tech because mm-hmm. it was just where things were happening. And it felt like if you were going to go make really big change and do something um, really new and innovative, that's where you should do it. Um, and so, but I think underneath that, there's also kind of a third pillar, which was ultimately owning a business and really wanted to, to have a hand in that. Mm-hmm. And were your parents at all? And it sounds like they weren't entrepreneurs. No, no, the opposite. My mom uh, was uh, a legal secretary. She was actually the legal secretary for Mr. Wright of Davis Wright Tremaine. Oh, oh awesome. Very so, cool. Yeah. I remember coming down to the office when I was young and going and meeting him and that was cool. And then um, and then she, uh, then she was, uh, she, she was a homemaker, um, as soon as we got to kind of, you know, uh, I think probably grade school. And then my dad was an investment consultant. So very traditional, very conservative in that way. Um, not, not at all tech. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing though. I was actually having dinner with some women last night. We were talking, it was like international women's day. We were talking about, um, uh, teaching kids like financial literacy yeah, and just like how to look at the world and, and um, all of it. And it sounds like your dad probably gave you a pretty good foundation in, in a different way than being an entrepreneur, but just like how to look at money and how it works and flows. Yeah, so. he totally did. And so, you know, I, as a young, as a, as a kid, you know, probably in my formative years, I had two really powerful mentors in my life. One was my dad. And as I've kind of painted, he was this picture of like very white collar, fairly conservative um uh, i might even be say very conservative but also you know took the long view of the of life and said here's how you can kind of line things up for success in his view and there's you know that is i think a certain view of the world and it was useful for me to understand that my neighbor um was another person who was really powerful in terms of being a mentor in my life and he was the opposite of my dad and he didn't have a family so i was kind of like his son, and he was kind of like my second father. And he was an entrepreneur. So he owned his own general contracting company. He had opened his own construction supply business. And he was the guy who was a little bit more take the risk, swing hard, swing big, enjoy life, go, you know, go for it. And yeah, you're not going to get everything right, but that's okay. You'll pick yourself up and keep moving. And I think also taught me around like, hey, there's nothing you can't do. Like, that's the way you need to think about this. Any problem you can solve and any problem you can go after. So it was really helpful and balanced to have this person, my dad, who is, you know, very conservative and very thoughtful in that way. And then on the other side, you know, uh, his name was Ken Hodge and Ken was a, is a dear friend and this other kind of more swashbuckling entrepreneur about take all the risks and go big. Yeah, I love that message, by the way, especially when you're young, because when you started wet paint, you were still pretty young. And it's a little bit like, you know, if somebody asks me, and I get asked all the time, should I do this? Yes. It's like, it's a little bit like, what do you have to lose? And especially from a recruiter standpoint of like a resume, it's like, it's not like you have a jumpy resume, you're five years into consulting, and right. you know, you have 
you have a little room to take yeah. that risk and God forbid it didn't work out. It's like, okay, well, I can go figure something else out, but it did work. Out. It did work yeah. out. So tell me about the origin of wet paint. Cause that's when I actually met you yeah. uh, with Ben. I remember walking through that kick-ass office. It was so, yeah. so yeah. vibrant and so much energy. And I loved what you were building. Yeah. Um, so, so Ben, uh, Ben Elowitz and I met when through call through a colleague at Lake Partners, the management consulting company. And I started socializing that, Hey, I was going to go do something else. I wanted to do something in tech. And, you know, this common friend of ours put us together and said, you guys just got to know one another. And so Ben and I met, I still remember it. We met at the Gordon Biersch uh, in, <laughs> in um, Pacific place. I don't even think it's there anymore, but I don't think so either. Yeah. So we sat down, had drinks, you know, and just talked about us, like not like what we were trying to go do, but like, who was he and who was I? And it was very clear from the get go, from the jump that, you know, Hey, this was something I'd want to spend more time with. And, you know, if you've ever met Ben, you'll, you'll, you'll understand. Oh, he that, is the but, coolest and the yeah. most charismatic and sweetest. I yes. love Ben Alowitz. Yeah. He's, he's the greatest. So he what was, incredible. what was that business? What was that business model? And what was the experience um, of selling it? Yeah. Yeah. So let me try to summarize this succinctly. So when Ben and I started talking about what, you know, where were their big opportunities in the space back in 2005, one of the things we identified was that people increasingly wanted to contribute to the web and they wanted to, you know, use their body of knowledge to help others. And what, you know, was around at the time was really message boards and message boards were fairly crappy at building kind of a common understanding of the world. It was great for conversations, but less good yeah. if you really wanted to learn a topic. I remember Ask Jeeves. Do you remember Ask Jeeves? Yeah, yeah. Way back. Yeah, way yeah. back. This was also the kind of advent in the early days of Wikipedia, right? Yes. And ultimately, you know, in the early days of wet paint, and it went through a couple of different, but one major pivot. But the early version of wet paint was really the analogy was if Wikipedia was the reference section in a library, we wanted wet paint to be every other book. Right. And so the idea was create a platform that was really easy to use to build a website and what we, you know, ultimately what we called social publishing. So you would be able to start a topic on something, a site on a topic you cared about, and you invite everyone to go help you build it. Now, that seems like so obvious today, but back in 2005, it's hard to believe yeah. that 15 plus years ago, that wasn't very obvious. Yeah. So that's how we said, hey, that's a really big opportunity. It's a way to change the internet and it's a way to give you know, a mankind, a set of tools to go contribute to do something really meaningful. And so that's what we started off on. Wet Paint had a big trend pivot in the middle of that when the online ad market cratered and we couldn't make any money basically selling ads against user-generated content. And we started to, um, we were then one of the early pioneers of social media optimization. So we went and built a tool set that would then allow brands to kind of build and monetize an audience on Facebook and Twitter. And yeah, then that company got acquired by Viggle. So I would say your second part of the question was hey you know what was that process like it was crazy it's like you you know wet paint was a long journey of eight years we'd been in the trenches and at, at times it was warfare right and so you know to come out the other side i think is certainly satisfying in a lot of space in, in a lot of ways given the you know the challenge that we went through but it wasn't also the transaction you know we didn't move to the bahamas after that and yeah you know, it wasn't we would consider it a successful outcome and that you got to do something new 
but it wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is a, a 10 X or some, you yeah, know, like, look at us. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. This wasn't a change the world financially uh, outcome. It was a, Hey, we saw this thing all the way through the company got acquired. Everyone went on wet paint lived on for many years after that. Uh, and I think there's still components of it that are around. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was very satisfying. And it was really satisfying to take a company from the earliest of stages uh, all the way through to yeah. a, a transaction. I would say that's probably, I would guess the most satisfying is that you're like, I can't even, there's no way you could read a book or you know, work at another company and learn because when you're the decision maker and it's your baby, it's like, it's, you're just learning as you go. Yeah. And so you've been able to probably bring a ton of that of like what I would do again, if I had to do it all over and what I would never do again yeah. to, do to Dolly. Of course. Um, of course. What, what did you learn from that experience as far as, um, you know, building a culture? Cause I would say that you've done a great job at both of those companies. Yeah. I, you know, um, I think there's two things going back to like, hey, what do I take away from 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 wet paint at, on mass? One is certainly lots of trials and tribulations, and you know I think people would obviously use the word wisdom of like I've got I had more wisdom I had and wisdom comes from battle scars of getting things yeah. wrong right and uh, and then making sure that you've learned you know learned ways to you know, avoid doing the same thing again in the future. So lots of that, and then the other thing is we had such an awesome team at wet paint. Like the thing that kept us going in the darkest of days when the challenges were the hardest was we had such a great group of people that we were working with. So I think the other thing that I took away from it was just the network and relationships that we had built over time there, Ben, obviously being a huge component of that. But, you know, folks that I work with today, I mean, I, I hired Alex Berg um, a year ago. to be I saw kid. that. I yeah, love to, that guy. I remember him. To be my VP of product and engineering, and he and I were also, you know, started wet paint together with Ben. So there was four of us at the outset. We took some time apart, and then, you know, but and there's a bunch of other wet painters who joined um, Dolly as well. So listen, you know, it was really, really helpful. Then, as to your question about culture, you know, I think the the number one thing I took away is just to be really intentional about it. Um, and from day one, start having conversations about what you want the culture to be. So as, you know, I just think the common mistake everyone makes, and I'm not by any means unique in saying this, but is if you don't do it, culture will happen on its own and then you won't have any control over it. So you're going to have a culture. And the question is, if you want to be really thoughtful and intentional about it, you should do that from day one. I think mm -hmm. that was really, you know, the number one learning I took away from wet paint. Yeah. There's so much I want to get into with wet paint. Um, but as long as we're talking about culture, I'm super curious, like, how did you do that? Because as I'm asking questions on the podcast, I always want to like, think there's someone listening that wants that might be starting a company. Yeah. Did you set values? Did you make that a collective experience? Um, were those reflective of you personally? Like, how do you even start? Because I'm a big fan of being intentional around culture, but I'm curious what you've done. Yeah. So we, I think every, of course there's, you know, there's, there's certainly parts of me embodied in it. And there are parts of the entire, um, uh, I think foundational team at Dolly. So when we got to, you know, there was four of us at the beginning. So very similar to wet paint in that regard. And then we had hired like maybe two or three people kind of pretty quickly out of the gate. So there's probably seven, us, seven of us or so. And so um, we started, you know, um, very quickly with that group having a conversation about, hey, what do we want to stand for? And so we spent a lot of time, of course, on what are we doing and why are we doing that? And then, of course, culture is the, well, how are you going to do that? Like not in the how, what are you going to build, but how are you going to live and how are you going to um, uh, interact? And so that was a conversation where um, I led our leadership group to kind of say, hey, 
let's put some stakes in the ground around things we think are important to us with some wording around them. And then we took that to the broader small team at that point and said, hey, we want to socialize this to the broader group. And that's one of the advantages of getting in early is you get to have a say and impact on those things. And so then we brought the full company in, but the full company at this point was less than 10 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then that 10, you know, that group of 10 people kind of massaged it and moved it around until we said, yeah, hey, that looks right. And uh, and we've, we've, we haven't changed a single, I'm looking at them now, we haven't changed a single element of the Dolly code since those are early days. And what, what is the Dolly code? So there are um, six, uh, I, There's and there's more detail, but I'll just give you the truncated versions of these. So there are six components of the Dolly code. The first one, and I'll read them in order, is customers first. I think that's pretty obvious. The second one is no divas, no dicks. And that's the <laughs> one that's the most controversial. And it's actually one we're talking about changing right now. I don't know that I would. I just did a huge pitch in July. And one of ours is get shit done. Yeah. And um, and I put it in the pitch and we were like, do we, do we not to a really conservative, not a conservative company, but a big company that was like, you know, do we put yes. this in? Yeah. And they loved it. They were like, God, it's so real and so raw. And it just kind of tells about who you are. I mean, I don't know about the word dicks, especially right now with all the Exactly. Yeah, so that's nice stuff. It's almost more about that. You could just be like, no assholes. Exactly. So I don't, the spirit of it, I absolutely do not want to change. It is actually the value that I hold the dearest in a lot of of ways. Of course. Um, But I think we may be able to describe it in in, in a more friendly way. And it also reflects you because I do think that you are like, I think of you as being super kind and super generous. And so I I would think that you would never tolerate working around some asshole. (laughs) No. Yeah. Like that's a core part of our interview experience of like, Hey, I don't want, uh, you know, I don't want any difficult personalities, even if they're superstars, I just don't have time for it. No. Um, So then there's show up, um, get better every day, embrace the what if, and it's, uh, it's about the results. I love this. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, so they, it, I think it has served us very well, and we have, you know, I think particularly in in COVID times, it is something where that is even harder to live, and so that's the thing that we keep trying to do. Of course, is anybody can put words up on a wall, and you know, how are you doing about living those? And we do pretty well with it, but we're always looking for ways to get better. Yeah, how have you incorporated that into your recruiting strategy? As far as how do you vet for those things? So, you know, the, obviously the no divas, no dicks one is an easy one. And that's actually a core part of, of a, you know, there's a cultural interview that, so someone on the interviewing team is generally providing the cultural component of the interview. So mm-hmm. I do that actually quite a bit. So for anybody, most of the technical folks who join our team meet me and I'm not there to validate their technical chops. Uh, though occasionally I ask a question that's mostly planted by someone on my team to see what happens. Um, but it's mostly a cultural interview. So uh, you know, and then I think you're you're building questions around, well, how do you think about results and how does that matter? How do you think about improving yourself and getting better every day? Like it's those, you, you, you can suss out answers to this, but I will also say like, I think recruiting is so hard, right? Because you just don't have much time to make a really important decision on a Mm -hmm. person that you're going to bring into the tent and that you're going to have with you for a meaningful amount of time. And at these stages of companies where, you know, you don't have that many people, every person matters. So what you guys do is super hard. Well, thank you. And, you know, some of it is um, if there's an art and a science, right, as you're making decisions around human beings, you have to at a certain point kind of roll the dice and, and take a little bit of a yep. of a flyer and go with your gut on just like reading humans. Yep. And then there's, of course, the data of like, what have they done? And uh, who do I know that maybe knows them? I can do a back channel reference. I mean, yep. there's all sorts of, you know, data points that we're pulling together. But um, 
when, when companies call us and like, I love this person, it's the best feeling in the world. Cause you're like, well, good. Because, you know, you just actually really never know, but we have less than a 1% fall off rate as far as candidates that don't work okay. out. And I, but I do think that's a little bit of a doing this type of conversation on the front end. It's the stuff, it's the white part of the paper on the resume and the white yeah. part of the conversation in the, in the client intake, because it's, it's reading between the lines about culture more than it is skill set usually. I, um, for what it's worth, like you just said, the statement of like, I love, I get really scared when I have that feeling. Um, it's like, am I really getting the full story? Like when I love someone, I really try, like I spend a lot more time referencing when the love factor is high, frankly, yeah. because I feel like like the bar for love should be high. And I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a lover you know? though. And I'm guessing you are too. I tend to love more people than my team loves and they they have way more scrutiny than I do. Yeah. Um, if I just like jive with someone, but we're both extra, I'm guessing you're an extrovert and we have the connection kind of component to our personalities. And so, it, uh, you know, you bring out people differently than other people. Yes. And so I do tend to get like, oh no, they're amazing. And then I'm an empath, so I feel for them. Anyway, we can go on to that forever. But I'm just tell me about the origin story of Dolly. So I met you in those early, I mean, obviously I already knew you when you were starting it, but yeah, uh, you were having a problem you were personally trying to solve, right? Yeah, I like, you know, um, we're, as you had, as the intro alluded to up front, we're in the moving and delivery space. And so we built, you know, basically what we believe is a really brilliant service that allows people to have access to pick up trucks and muscle and people will do all kinds of things with that. But generally they're moving, you know, they're, they're either moving stuff or getting stuff delivered or taking it away. Like that's mm -hmm. what we do. So mm -hmm. a lot of people will say, oh, Dolly, what Dolly is, you know, what, what, what Uber and Lyft are to moving people, Dolly is to moving, you know, stuff. And that's true. There's some, there's certainly similarities, but there are a lot of differences too. But in terms of origination, I don't have any, you know, experience in the transportation spaces as, as you have gathered and, you know, or logistics, or I haven't worked even at a retail, uh, at a retailer. So uh, this was the, you know, the, the, the idea for Dolly was born out of just being a frustrated consumer and saying, God, you know, every time I move or every time I try to get something delivered, uh, the experience just sucks. And mm -hmm. there's gotta be a better way to do this that serves me better as a consumer. And so that was really the core nucleus of what we started talking about, which was yes, moving sucks and everyone hates to move and there's a lot of reasons for that not the least of which is a crappy service experience that's usually not very well matched to what consumers expect and certainly what they've come to expect these days and on the same you know the other side of moving and i wasn't in a stage a space in life where i was moving a whole lot right i actually had a couple of kids but my co-founder at the time did i i looked at it and said wow you know my epiphany was yes all of those things are true with moving but they're also true with delivery and delivery is a much higher frequency need for people particularly homeowners like me like i get delivery all the time and it's the same crap experience where you're at the store or you're online you're buying something and you know it's days or weeks away from getting delivered you got to block off this huge portion of your time to sit and wait around you don't really understand whether the transaction is happening you can't get a hold of anyone to get help you certainly can't talk to your driver and all of this is you know you're getting all of this for still you know fairly a fairly expensive price point so we were looking at all these things saying, gosh, we can, we can see a way here to provide a service that is fundamentally 10x better than what's out there today using technology and a real focus on and uh, dedicating uh, a dedication to customer support. And that was really the early day, of, you know, the, the kind of foundational nugget for Dolly. Yeah. Well, I'm one of your customers and I had an amazing experience. Great. Um, yeah, really, truly amazing. And I remember in those early days, uh, we were talking over coffee, I feel like, um, 
discussing some of the pain points and it's like customer acquisition you know, like yeah. how do people even know about dolly yeah. that's one of them yeah and then also how do you find the the contractors and i was super psyched to see that you've expanded to 36 cities it sounds yeah. like yeah and over five thousand contractors yeah yeah we've got uh we call them helpers and so those are the folks who are out driving the trucks or helping lift the boxes or the couch on the other end yeah We're in 36 markets we just kind of incredible the biggest one um that we were you know i was personally the most scared by of course was new york yeah and we opened in new york last year and that market has been going really well for us i was gonna say i bet you're crushing it there because yeah. everybody has everything delivered and so my question around your helpers is how do you find them like where do you advertise it's not linkedin yeah uh, it's, it's Cra not LinkedIn. craigslist yeah, yeah, Craigslist is a good source for folks. I mean, one of you, one of the things I think we've discovered with this business is truck owners tend to know other truck owners, mm. um, and so you tap into these veins of folks. So Craigslist clearly been one, but then there's also you know you can imagine things like vets, um, veterans like our, um, and uh, you know I think folks who are firemen and in that trade tend to be truck owners or in the construction trades, right? Mm. So we've gotten pretty good at figuring out where do the veins of truck ownership live? And then where do they're all, you know, within those veins, where are there also usually folks who wanna work on at least a part-time basis and try to fill in some income mm -hmm. um, around whatever else they might wanna be do. But the vast majority of our helpers are not using Dolly as a primary source of income. It's a secondary yeah. source. Yeah, the gig economy. And so how do you vet them? Yeah, so we've got um, a pretty robust, several stage onboarding process that involves um, clearly screening. So we do background, uh, criminal background checks and driving records. We do vehicle verification, insurance verification. Um, so we go through a bunch of steps that basically are built purposely built for us since the early days to say like, hey, we're what's different about us, frankly, than almost every other gig economy company is we're putting people in people's homes. Mm. Right? We're not dropping burritos off or your groceries <laughs> off on the, on the front door, and we're not picking you up at the curb and dropping you off somewhere else. We're now we do have a curbside service, but the vast majority of our customers want us to carry the couch inside, right? Mm -hmm. And so totally. obviously. We're indoors, and that means that we've got to be um, very careful with the supply that we're onboarding. So it's a very extensive process. About um, four to five and ten of people who apply get through that, and uh, and and then are welcomed to the Dolly platform. And are there any of them that have experience doing like specific? Um installation of certain things like how do you put together a piano or put together uh, a treadmill or yeah or just physically moving things that are already you know ready to go yeah i would say you know we don't go we're not trying to attract existing professionals that are in the moving and delivery space I and mean, we certainly have them but that's not a core focus of ours what we've really built out is the ability to screen for what's going to be a high level of service for the customer. Totally. And the assembly and installation we do tends to be the less complicated stuff. Like we're not doing, like if you, there's a whole spectrum of installation and at the very high end of that, it would be things like, oh, you bought a stove and you need to connect it to a gas line. Yeah. Like we're not doing that. Yeah. Um, so that's so funny. I just, I had it when we rented a house during COVID and they're like washing machine broke. So I had to get a new one and they, they just like dropped it in the garage. I'm like, seriously, <laughs> what am I supposed to yeah. do with this? And yeah. they're like, oh, just Google how to install. I'm like, no, that's not happening. Yeah. Anyway, I like yeah. gave the guy 20 bucks to say, can you like, whatever. Um, yeah. So how did you fund the business? How did Dolly get funded? Did you bootstrap? I can't remember. Did you no, see? 
We raised, um, yeah, we raised a seed round. Um, you know, that was obviously the first thing that I had done. And again, I think one of the learnings coming off of wet paint was how to fundraise. And we had a very successful fundraising track there. And I, um, you know, kind of co-led that with Ben. And so I had a pretty good understanding about how to go do this and what I was looking for. So we raised a seed round. Um, uh, uh, and that was kind of the first that we did. We used that money for about six months. And then um, a bunch of notable investors from the Seattle area, Jeff Wilkie, who I'm sure you've talked about before is, you know, and has been pretty prolific in the investing scene was a big part of that. And then we closed a, a series A that Maveron led back. Yeah, in the I knew that. I love that. Um, yeah, I've had Dan on the podcast. It was one of my favorite interviews. He's awesome. Um, yeah, he is awesome. And so how much have you raised total to date? I think we're at 24 million, something in that neighborhood. So between the seed round, the uh, series A we've done, and then Unlock Ventures, Andy Lou, I don't know if you've had yeah, Andy on the podcast. Course. Yeah. yeah. Andy joined us more recently. And then yeah, I saw another, that it makes me happy. Yeah. And then there's another guy named Boris Wirtz from version one partners. Who's up in Vancouver who joined uh, with Andy. So those have been, yeah. Kind of and are these investors or who, you know, taking board seats, who's on your board and what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs about uh, why that matters? Yeah. So I'd go back to the no divas, no dicks. Like one of the things that I spent a lot of time on is, is, is making sure that I'm bringing people on who I'm really excited to work with for a, a many years. I mean, you've got very close relationships with these folks, or at least that's what my, you know, my, uh, my, my approach was. And so Maveron, uh, Jason Stoper is on the board and then Dan is a board observer. And so they've both been highly involved in the business and both have been wonderful. And they both bring different skill sets and, and things to the table that I value. And then Andy is also on the board. So, and then our independent board member is none other than Ben Elowitz. Yeah. So uh, we have an awesome board that is not just fun, but also really powerful. Uh, and I couldn't be more blessed. Yeah. And so the business model, as far as how Dolly makes money um, is, is what I'm assuming. Well, tell me. We don't worry about making money. That'll come in. No, We're no. just here to look at in our yeah, cool yeah. Dolly hats. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, so it's a pretty typical gig economy business where we take a rake, what we call a, a percentage of every transaction. Um, and uh, so that's the, the, that, that's the business model. Well, you've got, you do like direct to consumers as far as people like I could call you and say, Hey, I need to move this furniture from my house to my office or vice versa. And then you also are working with, as I mentioned, some of these large, you know, box retailers. Yeah. So who's paying you at the, who's paying you? Yeah. I, mean, I know that I paid when I was having something moved and it was a really reasonable price. And also I think they showed up within like an hour. I was like, this, yeah. dang, this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So you had, you had touched on this earlier when I think when you and I were first meeting, we were talking about the difficulties of customer acquisition and that, you know, historically what's true about our business is it's not something like burrito delivery and grocery delivery that you might need multiple times per week or certainly multiple times per month. And that moving and delivery tends to be something you might need every couple of months or every six months. Um, and so that frequency has been the challenge for our business, which is how do you have a really efficient customer acquisition machine? And we started the business knowing that direct to consumer wouldn't be the long-term way that we'd want to build it, but that's what we started with to build the brand and start to build a footprint. Um, and then as you were suggesting about two years ago, um, we knew we were, we had enough of a geographic footprint at that point and knew enough about how to make the business work that we were ready to go out and start bringing on retail partners. And we knew that was ultimately going to be the very high growth 
low customer acquisition cost way to acquire consumers. And so that's, we've shifted. I mean, we don't spend any money on advertising anymore. Um, we have shifted all of that into going after retailers and, 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 um, uh, and doing delivery partnerships with the brands that you shop at. And so what's good about that for us is we're doing it in a branded way. So Dolly is out front of the customer and it's getting put out front by, uh, you know, into the consumer by the brand that you know. Oh, it's incredible. That's a great partnership model. I mean, it really is. It's incredible exposure for the business. People don't realize this, but like one of the, I think the best analogies I've been able to come up with who about who's done this really successfully in the past was FedEx did this, right? So FedEx back in the eighties built a business where oftentimes your first experience with FedEx would be by way of business. And then FedEx said, well, Hey, if you want to book a FedEx, like you can just walk into our store or call us, like you don't have to be a business. And so that's kind of the model we're adopting, which is you might get introduced to Dolly because we delivered your couch from Costco, but then you can realize like, oh, I can go direct to Dolly to go do whatever I might want to. With and this. how do they discover that though? Is it like the, the, the helper is telling them like, oh, hey, if you ever need us. No, no, no. Generally speaking, like you know, a we're branded inside of the the Costco experience. Let's just say Costco as the partner. So if you're in a if you're in a Costco warehouse, you'll see Dolly branding up, um, and that's true of all of our retail partners. And then as the process is unfolding, you're getting emails and communications from Dolly. You're paying by way of Dolly if you're the one who's actually paying. Um, and then we follow up with email, as you can appreciate, if the and, you know if the experience went well, and said, hey, if that was a great delivery experience, here's the ten other things that you can do with Dolly in your life. Oh, it's so cool. I'm so excited for you. It's just killer. I, I mean, this you're just crushing it. It's awesome. How does it feel to be the CEO of a company as far as, um, you know, I know you've got co-founders, you've got a board, you've got a wife, like, do you ever have this kind of weight of the world um, kind of lonely feeling or? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, like, like, you know, it is, I think it is the loneliest job there is. Um, and because like the hard problems flow uphill, despite what people may have, you know, what people like to say. Um, And, you know, when you get to the CEO, I have a group of mentors that I've surrounded myself with, some of which are on my board as I've shared. And so I'm really lucky to have that, but it does feel like, hey, you've got to, they're not going to make the decision. You've got to make it. They might guide and counsel you, but you've got to ultimately be the one. And you know this, like, this is what ends up happening. Like you got to make the tough calls and you can gather input and counsel from other people, but ultimately it's your decision and your responsibility and your accountability. Right. And and when you're going to someone like, even if they're mentors, if they're on your board and they're investors and they have a vested interest, sometimes it can feel hard to be vulnerable. And I'm sure that that's part of the decision-making process in choosing who you want to go with as your investors. Cause you're like, I need you to have me in the, in the good times and the bad. Yes. Yeah. I think, and I certainly did this with, with Mavron and Dan and Jason would attest to this. Um, and I think it's really important to do is when you are interviewing um, venture investors and it is an interview and it should work both ways, though people can lose sight of that. One of the things you should ask for if you're fortunate enough to have the option to choose who your venture investors are going to be is, hey, help me. You know, I'd like you to connect me to portfolio companies and CEOs you've worked with where things haven't gone well. And I want to understand how you behaved uh, in that period of time, because it doesn't help me for you to connect me to the home runs. It's easy when everything's going. Of course, on. it's like everyone's happy when things are going well. That's, you know, a, that's great uh, advice. Raw, raw, raw. Everyone's yeah. in. 
Yeah, that's great uh, advice. I love it. So how are you balancing your time between three kids? You got your business. You're probably trying to get up to the mountains here and there. Yeah, it's hard. Um, It's really hard. And I'd say that's one of the things that weighs on me is it is very important for me to be a good husband and a good father. And it is also important for me to be a good CEO. And that is a squeeze the balloon exercise. Like there's just no way around that. I don't always get it right. And I make apologies on both sides, on all sides of that equation. Um, And I'm quick to say, Hey, I'm not going to get all of this right, but I'm going to try to do the best I can. And I'm open to feedback. Um, And so, you know, uh, I try to, I like the, the, I try to really be very, um, uh, what's the right way to say this? Like mindful, uh, intentional. Yeah, it's almost like I hate to say this, like ruthless with boundaries of like, oh. hey, I am working and between these hours and by and, and you know, there's always got to be some flexibility, but this is my prime work time. Yeah. Like you don't, you guys can't see this, the listeners, but I'm at the office right now um, in Dolly HQ and I've been here pr- most days through COVID. And one of the reasons for that that I've discovered is it's really important for me to have transitions in and out of work. And if I don't have that, I can just work all the time. Yeah, that uh, makes so sense. Just getting in the car or in my case, getting on the water taxi and coming over from West Seattle and making the little walk up is like, okay, I'm in, I'm going to work. And when I'm at work, I'm going to be working and I'm going to be focused on that. And then I'm going to leave. And when I walk yeah. out, I go across the water taxi and back up to my house. I'm like, okay, I, you know, I'm in life and I'm trying to be a husband and a father. And again, I don't always get it right, but that's really one of the keys. Yeah, that's super smart. Um, okay. I could talk to you all day, um, but I'm going to wrap. Fun. I'm going to uh, super fun. I'm going to wrap it up with my final question, which is what fuels you? Oh my God. Of course. You're going to ask this. Of course. Right. Yeah, Like your ultimate fuel, like what gets you out of bed? What gets you jazzed? Yeah. Gosh, let me think about this for a second. I, the visceral answer is um, it's really about loving the people for me. Like, I, you know, and it goes back and, you know, I, obviously the thread is that value, Um, but I get really excited about doing fun stuff with cool people, right. That I like, that I like to spend, that can be skiing and it can be working on business and it can be going out to dinner. I just, I think for me, it's about getting up and working with and, and, and hanging out with good people. Yeah. Well, you're good people. So I'm sure you're drawing them all in and I'm super grateful to have you on the podcast. Can't wait to watch you continue to kick ass with your, with your nice people at your company. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you again. All right. See ya. Okay. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.